both, and thank you for listening to another edition of our EPS Real Solutions podcast series. I'm Lisa Baer, and I hope that this podcast will give you an opportunity to dig a bit deeper into topical employment law and human resources subjects and hear directly from the writers, our EPS attorney consultant. Today, we're going to take a look at a very hot topic, the rapidly changing legal decisions affecting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals in the workplace. We'll link to the article on our website, written by our EPS consultant, Lori Waxman. Lori brings more than 20 years of employment law experience to her role at EPS. Previously, Lori was counsel, assistant vice president, and team leader for corporate affairs at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where she counseled clients throughout the bank on policy, corporate issues, and employment law matters. Lori advised on employee policies, benefits, and ethics. She also conducted training sessions and assisted in EEO investigations. Lori received her law degree, magna cum laude, from Brooklyn Law School in 1992, where she was notes and comment editor of the Law Review. She received her Bachelor of Arts degree in government from Wesleyan University in 1988, where she was the recipient of the Davenport Prize. Lori is admitted to practice law in New York. Welcome, Lori. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Great. We're glad to have you. Lori, your article does a really thorough job of enumerating the recent legal decisions affecting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals in the workplace. It seems to me that the legal landscape is in the process of sorting itself out almost on an agency-by-agency basis, and employers are really challenged to stay on top of these decisions. And the backdrop for a lot of this activity is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'd like for you to help me and our listeners understand where Title VII is lacking in terms of its direction on the issue of LBGT issues in the workplace. Give us a little of the context for all of these decisions. Sure. Well, Title VII generally prohibits discrimination based on sex, among other areas. And at first glance, it seems to be very clear, except that Title VII does not define what sex discrimination is and what it might include. So that's why agencies and states and courts, everybody's trying to figure out what is discrimination based on sex. And that's how I started my article. And I started digging around and there's a lot of different interpretations, and it's confusing for employers because of that. Got you. You said that in the article, you indicated that the EEOC has, pro- has provided a decision recently that offered employers guidance on this issue. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision and go a little bit more in-depth for our listeners? Yes. In 2012, the EEOC issued a decision, and it was called Macy versus Holder, And in that decision, the EEOC held that um, sex discrimination includes, by definition, transgender status. So that was very clear, but that's just the EEOC. And when I say just, it's not law um, for any of the other states or for um, it doesn't it doesn't change the definition of sex under Title seven. It's just the EOC's interpretation. So while that is helpful to courts, they don't have to follow it. And there's still a lot of confusion. And I also wanted to add one more thing, which is 
the EEOC was careful to say that they were including gender, um, I'm sorry, gender identity discrimination in the definition of sex discrimination, but not sexual orientation. That's still decided on a case-by-case basis. So while there seems to be some clarity, there's still many open questions and other agencies and um, other courts are still struggling to reach their own you know, decisions on what exactly sex discrimination entails. So one of those decisions is President Obama has now weighed in with an executive order uh, to make decisions about LGBT discrimination on the federal contractor front, uh, another segment of the workplace. Can you give us a little bit more detail about President Obama's order and what that means? Yes. Back in July of last summer, the president signed an executive order which prohibited federal contractors and subcontractors from discriminating on the basis of both sexual orientation and gender identity in the workplace. And then recently, just I think it was early April of this year, the Department of Labor um, made that a final rule. So what that means is that federal contractors and subcontractors are prohibited from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It was a huge, um, a huge decision, and, and reaches a lot of, of different, um, you know, contractors, and, and it's just really um, changes the legal landscape as far as those employers are concerned. So that means federal contractors abide by that order, as well as if I'm an employer who's doing business with. Uh, a federal agency, I have to abide by that order as well, Lori, just to clarify. Put a it, exa- exactly, and that does reach a lot of folks. Now, it still doesn't reach private employers who are not doing any type of work with federal contractors or subcontractors, but still, it, it's huge, and it reaches you know across the United States. So it's um, it might lead to, to further developments, but it was pretty, pretty huge. And it happened in April 2015. If you read my article, a lot of these developments happened as I was writing the article. It was very interesting. I had to keep, you always need to update your law as you're writing a legal article. But in this case, it was changing day by day. I think this was April 8th, and I finished my article on, I don't know, April 15th or 20th. It was hot off the presses. Exactly, exactly. Well, even last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the issue of same-sex marriage, but in June of 2013, we're all aware that they also decided in the United States versus Windsor, which found, that particular case, found that Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, limited the definitions of marriage and spouse to opposite sex marriage and spouses, and the Supreme Court determined that that, in fact, was unconstitutional. There have been a number of developments that came out of that particular decision, especially as it relates to FMLA or the Family and Medical Leave Act, and apparently a few other states are now starting to chime in on this issue as well. FMLA can be a fraught thing for many employers to administer, so this is another uh, layer of complexity to sort of wade through, Lori. Can you lay out the FMLA issue and the state's argument uh, around these issues as it affects LGBT employees and yes. employers yes. Who, are, who are dealing with those issues? Well, what the Department of Labor did following that, the United States Department of Labor, what they did following that decision was they issued a rule 
revising the definition of spouse under the Family Medical Leave Act so that employees in legal and same-sex common law marriages can take family leave to care for spouses, family members, and that sort of thing, regardless of where they live. So it was huge. And the DOL said, basically, look, we're going to do this because the Supreme Court, you know, paved the way, except that some states disagree with that decision and don't want to follow the DOL. They think the DOL, the United States DOL, was too far reaching in telling their states what to do with regard to FEMLA leave in their state. So it's an interesting state versus federal um, sort of battle, so to speak. And Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Nebraska happen not to recognize same-sex marriages in their states, and they basically um, said, we're not going to do this. They argued that the Department of Labor, you know, the United States Department of Labor exceeded its authority and violated their state laws. So, you know, it's a real legal analysis, but at the end of the day, those states are not, um, they're not following it. And so what I would say to employers is in those states is wait and see, but for the other states, um, they really should follow the new definition of, of um, spouse under FEMLA. It seems as though, you know, this is confusing for all parties involved, but it's really only those four states. And, and even that's confusing because do you have to be a state employee or a private employee? It's not clear. But if you're in one of those four states, I would definitely keep an eye on further legal developments. Goodness, so at the state level, there's going to be some sorting out, at least among those four states, and for multi-state employers, that makes it especially challenging. You mentioned two exactly. other cases. Exactly. So two other cases at the federal level that seem to be developing and adding interesting color to these issues. You mentioned in the article Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins, and there's in Texas, again, a case uh, concerning Saks <laughs> Fifth Avenue that the outcome of those cases may uh, give us more insight into how these issues are going to unfold. Can you give us a quick summary of both of those cases? Well, Price Waterhouse, interestingly enough, is a case, it's a Supreme Court case, and it was decided in 1989. And what's interesting to me, at least, is that that case did not have anything to do with sexual orientation or um, you know, gender identity discrimination issues, it really talked about um, discrimination on the basis of sex and non-conforming with sexual or gender stereotypes. So, so many courts and agencies, including the EOC, have relied on Price Waterhouse for all different kinds of conclusions. <laughs> um, but the truth is that was really a case about um, is somebody being discriminated against on the basis of their sex because they're not they're a woman who's not acting like a woman should act or a man acting like a man should act. But there's a lot of um, interesting information in that case. And it's just, I find it interesting that both sides use it, <laughs> so to speak, especially the, um, at this point in time, discrimination based on sexual orientation. While that's not a covered category under federal law, if a plaintiff can show that they're being discriminated against, not just because of sexual orientation, but because they are, um, they think that their employee is not treating them right because they're not acting as a man should or a woman should, they could have a case. And I, I just find that fascinating. And what I would suggest to attorneys is look up that case in your jurisdiction and see what courts have done because they use it for all different things, but it's an interesting case. Um, the other case that you 
that I talked about and you just mentioned is the Saks Fifth Avenue case, which to me is um, shows how a case can be affected by outside sort of forces. Um, that was a case that was in Texas, and it was um, kind of a classic case where somebody said, hey, I'm not being treated right on the basis of my transgender status. But instead of that case just dealing with that issue, it sort of got, I want to say, blown up and other agencies became involved and other states became involved and it changed the course of the case such that it settled. Um, basically, Saks Fifth Avenue was going to take the position in that case originally. They said they had, I think he already filed their papers saying, hey, in our jurisdiction in Texas, um, there is no protection for transgender employees. So as a matter of law, plaintiff, you can't bring this case. But that they then backed away from that, not because the law wasn't on their side, but because of outside forces. And outside forces, I mean, um, the United States Attorney General wrote a letter, um, the, the U.S. Attorney for, um, I'm sorry, not U.S. Attorney, the uh, head attorney in New York wrote um, a letter to the New York Saks Fifth Avenue looking into their policies and procedures because under New York state law, like a lot of state laws, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is impermissible. Actually, New York City law covers that. New York State is just sexual orientation. So those letters and those entities becoming involved led to Sachs at first withdrawing its papers and saying, you know, we'll just fight this on the merits. We won't say as a matter of law that the plaintiff would use and then ultimately settling the case. Um, what it was was... Um, the Department of Justice in January 2015 filed, and this is again the United States Department of Justice, a statement of interest is what they called it, which are, were papers um, in which it stated its opinion that discrimination against an employee based on gender identity is discrimination based on sex. So despite the fact that there was no um, law in Texas saying that the Department of Justice just sort of inserted itself into that case, which is very unusual in the legal world. And also in January of 2015, it was New York's attorney general um, that sent a letter to Sachs in New York. So a different entity that wasn't involved in the lawsuit um, asking about their anti-discrimination policies and the processes for employees to file harassment complaints, as well as training materials. I mean, it just started basically an investigation into New York Sachs. And ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the Sachs case settled. So, Lori, as an employer, you've mentioned policies, you've mentioned uh, procedures in terms of uh, lodging a complaint within an employer situation. I know training investigations. Tell me a little bit as an employer, if there's maybe two or three things that I need to be completely aware of as these things are unfolding and taking shape and solidifying. As an employer, what is it that I need to do to be prepared to minimize my risk? What are the takeaways for us as employers? Well, first of all, in many states, discrimination based on sexual orientation and or, sorry, gender-based discrimination is... Um, is illegal. So you cannot under, for example, in New York State, somebody's sexual orientation, if you discriminate on that basis, they're protected. And under New York City law, both that and gender identity discrimination is protected. So for example, here in New York, 
as in many states, you would want a policy that says you cannot treat employees differently on these bases because there's state law involved. Even if you don't, though, have state laws or local city laws that prohibit such discrimination, it would definitely be a best practice to have that type of a policy um, simply because you want to create a respectful workplace. And whether it's dictated by law or not, an employer may want to protect people in all different categories, whether or not it's sex-based discrimination in the classic way under the Title VII definition, or, you know, if you're, if you are, um, they, they may want to prevent uh, discrimination on other bases in their workplace. So I would suggest to employers to include these categories in their policies. And obviously, once you include it, you need to train everybody on it. So for example, just putting it in your policy and not telling your employees what that means um, would would could still lead to further trouble. And right now, with you know the it's such a hot area in the law, and people are watching TV and seeing the Bruce Jenner matter and all of that. It's on people's minds. It's a great time to have a training. I think people are ready for it and will understand it. And at the same time, as we all know, you can't just have a policy without some sort of enforcement mechanism. So you need to have policies and procedures by which employees who feel like they are being treated differently on these bases, you need, you need to have a way that the employer will look into this and, and, and make sure that um, the policy is enforced. Good information, Lori. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can find a link to Lori's full article and learn more about her, EPS services, and listen to additional Real Solutions podcasts at our website, epspros.com. That's E-P-S-P-R-O-S dot com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face in HR and in the legal profession. Hope you'll enjoy us and us.